Amen. Give up coffee shops. Who does he think he is? <laughs> really? I mean, it's absolute nonsense. But uh, seriously, uh, do uh, think about uh, how you're going to engage. I know you got the first advert uh, when I first... But we want to uh, continue to grow that prayer culture within our lives and as a church and, and to step into that. And we had a beautiful... Uh, uh, New Year's Eve service. I don't know if you were here, and if you're joining us online, uh, it was it was amazing. And thank you for joining us. It was amazing to see uh, five uh, people baptized, wasn't it? I think uh, Lynn came in here crying. She stood on the stage crying, and then she got baptized crying, and then she went out crying. Uh, <coughs> that was for joy, by the way. Um, she was crying for joy. And, and it was, it was uh, really a very a special time. And in the evening, uh, three others were baptized at Pursuit. So we started the year with eight baptisms. So uh, that would be great if we could just keep at eight a month. Wouldn't that be great? And then um, I'm trying to do my maths right now. Uh, but you know what that adds up to, don't you? 96. Um, I hope. Uh, so, so, you know, what a great time and what an encouragement to, to see the way the Lord is working. We're stepping into uh, the book of Mark and uh, next week we begin the series, uh, as it were, full fat, straight into it. But I wanted to, uh, this week, as uh, campuses are either choosing to do a preamble to the book of Mark or, or preaching uh, freely, uh, but then we'll, all of our communities will step in and start to, to study the book of Mark and, and step into this journey. And it is so wonderful that we can break bread together as well and just know the Lord's presence at work in our lives. So um, Mark, in the beginning, the reason I say this is because as we look at Mark, it has the sense of creation about it. The author of Mark um, uh, Mark uh, probably got his source from a well-known character that we know called Peter. Now, 50 years ago and in the last uh, number of decades, even into the 80s, uh, theologians who were liberal and uh, historians who were anti-church and the kind of view through, through the last century was that the Gospels could not have been gathered together and, and written in this way until around 300 AD. And they always said, you know, they're a cobbled together group of stories that were kind of uh, given through hearsay and there was no connection to the actual source of the Lord Jesus Christ. Can I just encourage you that, and many people actually lost their faith because of that. Uh, well-known Christians who lost their way in liberalism and lost their way on the journey. Can I say that today, and it's been amazing to see academics and others giving their lives back to Christ and rediscovering their Christianity because it is clear historically with the triangulization of the way we do history and, and particularly as we look at the book of Mark that, that the writer of, uh, of Mark was directly taken taking his source from those who were present at the time, who knew this is real time. Uh, probably written between anywhere between 
45 AD and 60 AD. And it is, it, we can know with confidence that, that the, the source and the text is linked to historical rigor. Now, you have to decide for yourself whether you believe Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And as C.S. Lewis said, he either was a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. But in terms of historic uh, account, absolute, we can have confidence. I mean, there are, it was probably... Uh, greatly taken from the uh, life of, of Peter and Peter's account and Peter's words and what Peter saw. P- Peter is mentioned in and, and spoken about in, in the Gospel of Mark in the most profound ways. You have that a moment where Jesus tells Peter to, to get thee behind me, Satan. Uh, and that's a remarkable moment in, in Mark chapter 8. And, and, and if you were a disciple and that story was passed around, you'd probably want to suppress that story. Particularly as he was the most significant member of the church and, and, and of the ancient church. Why would you put that in if you're fabricating it 300 years later with a group of, of, of Christian bishops trying to pull everything together? It's nonsense. They were there. They saw it. And we can have confidence in the word of God. That encourages us as we move forward to understand that as we look at Mark's gospel chapter by chapter for 16 weeks, as we take key verses, as we take the thematic approach, we can see what God is is speaking and saying to us. And I, I didn't want to do a free preach this morning. I wanted to introduce you to the book of Mark. So let us read together. In the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. This is good news. In the ancient world, this language we knew was heralded around. Uh, You know, you have uh, Roman texts and great letters and decrees from great Caesars uh, that sent out good news. It's the same terminology. What good news that the, that the Roman Empire is not warring against each other. Good news that we've subdued the northern tribes and those hideous Germans and British that keep coming towards us. Good news. It is the same language that is used for a kind of imperial message that goes out to the world and says, something good has taken place. Something good has happened. I'll tell you what, 2,000 years later, something good has really happened, hasn't it? That we know how good this goodness is, if you like, if that makes it all grammatical sense. But as, as it is written in the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare you a way. A voice of one that calls in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make a straight path for him. Boy, um, they are really um, declaring and making a statement. I... Um, You know, when you look at this, I don't know if you've ever had the pleasure or the not so pleasure, probably at camp you did, that when somebody came into your bedroom with a great big bucket of ice cold water and threw it over you. You ever had that experience? In fact, people did it on Facebook for fun to raise money for charity where you had to put a, um, a bucket of cold water over your head. Everybody nominated me and I ignored them. Um, <laughs> 
Uh, I was certainly not going to do that. But, and it was, well, I think one one was to have stronger marriages do it together, get a life. And <laughs> I'm not doing that. Cold water coming down on me. Not a chance uh, that we can do this. Well, this is the cold water, a moment where John the Baptist appears, takes a great big bucket of water, throws it into the face of Israel and says, wake up, God's doing something. It was N.T. Wright that coined that phrase. That this is the moment where we, we wake up. This is the moment, Israel, see that God is doing something in the world that is immense, that is global, that is good news heralded not from a Caesar in Rome, but from God himself has said this. And, the, and the John the Baptist comes with his message with a great big tub of cold water and says, I'm going to pour this over you, prepare the way of the Lord, make a straight path. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins and the whole of Judea countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him confessing their sins and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan. A glorious moment. A revival taking place. And John wore clothes made of camel hair with a leather belt around his waist and he ate locusts and wild honey. The classic dress for a great Old Testament prophet. And this was his message. After me comes one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Wow. Amazing words. Incredible what is being, happening here. Your first read of this, you may not notice it, but this is a moment of immense magnitude. Of course, you know this. It's the beginning of Jesus' ministry. It's the beginning of the change. It's the beginning of the great rescue project. The great plan to redeem the world is taking place right here. But the way that the author crafts this is is not only does he give it with an imperial call out for the great news across the world and the empires, but now he links this moment to creation and Genesis itself. You see, in the first chapter of Mark, there is the narrative of Genesis being reflected in the book of Mark. Well, what what do you mean by that? Well, of course, what we have at the beginning of this process, we we have the Trinity. We have God the Father... We had the Son and we had the Spirit. And, and it says, and the Spirit descended on him like a dove. This is a very, very uncommon uh, phrase at this time. To associate the Spirit of God with the dove is, 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 
is, is very strange. It was, was practically unheard of, except in the, um, in the Bible that the Jews were reading at the time, the Tarragon, there is a verse at the beginning of creation in Genesis chapter 1 in the Aramaic Bible that they were reading at the time that talked about the Spirit of the Lord hovering over the waters, of which the verb of that is to flutter over the waters. So what the author is doing is linking the greatest event in human history, in one sense, is the creation of the world, of course, where God spoke the world and the universe into creation, where there was the Trinity present, and there was God who was present, God's word that was spoken, and God's spirit that was on the waters, fluttering. And then what do you have? You have the presence of God there, The spirit fluttering and you have Jesus, the word of God made flesh. The author is linking this moment with creation. In fact, it goes on because the moment after that he goes into the wilderness to be tempted. And you know the story of creation in in Genesis 3 with the fall and the temptation that takes place. And so he's linking this. And why is he doing this? Well, I believe and he's doing this to affirm the fact that the greatest event, of course, that we look in Scripture in one way is the creation of all things. But certainly that was project creation. And this is project redemption. This is the greatest moment that's going to change the whole of creation because the Son of God has come from heaven to redeem humanity and to bring his rescuing message to the world. Amen? That's what he's trying to say. And so here we have the Trinity at work. The Son, the Spirit, and the voice of God present speaking. The Trinity is beautiful. The Trinity, one God, one eternal God, existing in three persons. Neither more one God or neither more three persons. It is a mystery. It is beautiful. It is not tritheism, which is three gods who work in harmony with each other. It's not that. It is not one God who manifests himself in different ways, moves, morphs into different forms. And I know that often when I'm in theological meetings and young pastors are being interviewed at a conference and they have to talk about the Trinity, it's like our eyes roll a little bit when suddenly they use the example of water with ice and steam and, 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 and so on. They kind of go, oh, you know, this is kind of Sunday school approach to the Trinity. Um, and, and it's kind of like, it's far more than saying that God is like water with a bit of ice, a bit of steam and running water. And God is, God is the water and God is, and the spirit is the steam and, and Jesus is the ice block, I suppose. That's a very good Canadian example. And it's far more than that. 
It is glorious. It is mysterious. And let me take you into a moment into the Trinity itself and explain to you some aspects of what takes place within the Trinity. Because when we understand the Trinity and the church has fought for 2,000 years to hold on to the doctrine of the Trinity. And friends, do not let go of the doctrine of the Trinity. Because when you lose the doctrine of the Trinity, you lose the glory and the message of God himself and the redemptive person of the gospel working in the world. So, so don't lose the Trinity, ever. Because it, we drift into apostasy when we lose the Trinity. But the Trinity, they know each other. At the very essence of the Trinity, you have, you have a sense of love. You have a a desire to honour each other. You have a desire to glorify each other. They are adoring each other. They are in relationship with each other. They know each other. They are one God in three persons. In fact, John's gospel, if I can run ahead to there, to John chapter 17 and verse Uh, 4 and 5, really explains this to us. Uh, Oh, there we go, brilliant. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do this. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. As we look at that verse, we see that he talks about how the Son glorifies the Father, the Father glorifies the Son, and there is a mutualness of them glorifying each other. Let me try and explain this a little way. It's that within the working of the three persons of the Trinity, they are exalting each other. They are communing with each other. They are adoring each other. They are centering their focus on one another. And and they have regard for each other. And they lift each other up. And they they do it out of pleasure. They do it out of of glorifying one another. They honour each other in relationship, in love. Why is this important? That we have a God in three. It's important because when you have a God who is one, that God cannot possibly know love. Think about it. You have a you-know-God, one God with no three persons. And you have the whole of eternity and that one God is alone. How can that one God know true relationship, know true love, know true intimacy, know true communion if that God is alone? He can't. So yes, he creates humanity for his pleasure. To get pleasure, to get relationship, bad theology. See, 
You can have a God who is one and we can all go to prayer to him. You can holler it over the cities. You can go to the one God. But that one God, you can look at the one God and and see that and talk to the followers of a one God and they talk nothing about relationship, nothing about communion, nothing about intimacy. And yet the triune God is about relationship and about adoring and about intimacy and about beauty and about three persons, one God holding each other up. You get your theology right on the Trinity and it changes the way that you live. And so many people say, but okay, you're getting a bit passionate about the Trinity. Quite right, because I get emails by people telling me that the Trinity is a false doctrine. And they come in and they, they try and they, and I just, a lone God cannot know relationship. A triune God is built on relationship. He's built on love, true love. And it's a, it's a wonderful revelation that they're doing it out of pleasure, not out of, out, of, uh, out of having to do it. Have you ever done anything out of pleasure? Well, it's been amazing. You know, it reminds me when I, um, when I was at school, I had to do history of music classes. And we all had to go into a room. My teacher was, I think my teacher was Mr. Goiter. He had a long beard. And, and we would sit there with him and he would put, he'd get his record player out. Do you remember record players? With, with round discs that were black. Amazing. Amazing. And, and you would take this disc and you would put it on the record player and you would play it and he would say to us, now we're going to go through the history of music and we listen to each composer and I want you to listen to each composer and I want you to write an essay. I had to do it because I had to pass the class, right? I hated every moment. I mean, it was the 80s. I was listening to the Sex Pistols and if you don't know who the Sex Pistols are, then do not Google it. Um, I was listening... To Sid Vicious. I didn't want to listen to Handel, to Mozart, to Beethoven. I wanted to listen. These were the days when, when many of you, if you were rebellious headbanger Canadians, were wandering around with T-shirts like ACDC and, you know, Guns N' Roses. Do you remember those days? Barbara Streisand. And <laughs> they'd wander around. I didn't want to listen to Mozart. Oh... Now, a little-known fact that you may not know about me, because I hide it, is that if I listen to music, I listen to classical music. I listen to particularly Handel, who doesn't love Mozart. I've left Sid Vicious behind. There was a point where what was a chore and was about self suddenly happened where now I listen to classical music. Not because I have to, but because of its beauty. 
because of its imagination and because it's of pleasure. That is the Godhead. That the Godhead respond not because they have to, but because of beauty, because of imagination, and because of pleasure. It's the same, dragging me up a mountain when I was 14 years old to pass outdoor ed, uh, going onto a Welsh mountain. I use the word mountain as a statement of faith, but it was big, but not anything you know. But we would walk 3,000 feet up to the top and, and I would be carrying my Coca-Cola bottle and, and moaning and dragging my feet and, and right at the back of the crowd. And, and I hated those trips to Wales to climb a mountain to tick off the box so that we could pass. It was horrific. But today, you give me any choice. I'd rather walk and climb than anything. And if I can walk and climb and listen to classical music, that's divine. Because it's no longer about myself. It's about the beauty and the imagination and about the pleasure that I gain from that. And I am able to throw myself into that. And there's a glory and there's a regard and there's a depth that is happening. C.S. Lewis called this the dance. The dance of God, of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Oh, we are, we called, what, what is the Trinity doing then? The Trinity is serving one another. They're in relationship. So what's the message for you and I? Come on, preacher, give me the application. True humanity and true fulfillment only really comes when we serve out of unconditional love to each other. And when we serve out of unconditional love to each other, out of regard, out of communion, out of intimacy, out of closeness, we engage in the dance of the Trinity that is about love. We we adore. How many of us have been adored? How many of us have entered into a relationship that, and often this is what marriage should be, where where we are serving one another, in friendship this should be, in relationships and when we treat each other, that when when we meet other human beings, we are willing to love them. We are willing to journey with them. We are willing to have intimacy and in marriage when you cross over from leaving selfishness behind and service as the main role in marriage, suddenly the intimacy and the pleasure and the devotion should be sublime. But often our relationships are nothing like sublime. Why? Why don't we do the great dance? Well, we don't do the great dance (laughs) because we are self-centered. And self-centeredness is what 
drives us away from the heart of who God is. When we centre on ourselves in our journey, when we centre on ourselves, you see, selfishness, being self-centred, is a static, difficult, horrible way to live. Self-centeredness, oh yes, when we try and make the world revolve around us and our people and our family and our relationships revolve around us, that is a very unfulfilling and a very static way of living. Imagine if you all, if we stood up and said, okay, Let's, let's play a game together. Let's get everybody to revolve around me. But the game is that every one of you has to get everybody to revolve around you. It would be crazy, correct? Because you're wearing yourself out. Come, come over to me. Come on, make me feel good. Come on, let me, come on. I, I may, I may have, have good uh, appear. But come on, grow, come around my world. No, I'm important as opposed to the dance of the Trinity, which is, let me honour you. Let me bless you. Let me adore you. Let me glorify you. It becomes, suddenly, when you're self-centred, things become a means to an end. Oh yes, we have marriages as long as it's around me. We have friendships as long as they work around me. I I am in employment as long as it works around me. That becomes a very static, draining, exhausting way for one to live. So what is the point? Because we serve a God who at the very heart and essence of God, is loving relationship, then as human beings, when we lay down our selfishness and we love each other, like the Trinity loves each other, I guess, our perspective starts to change and rather than centering on me, I am looking and centering my whole life on the King of kings and the Lord of lords. If you center your whole life on the King of kings and the Lord of lords, your perspective changes. See, the evolutionists will tell us that we're here by chance. They will tell us that, it's, that we love because of a test tube experience in our brain, a chemical that is all released so that we, um, we, we, we reproduce and continue the survival of the human race, etc., etc. If that is the meaning of the world, then that is, and I can tell you it is not. You love and connect Because God has given you his image within you. And when we seek relationships that are not self-centered, but are God-centered and blessing each other, and this is what partly the Trinity teaches us. Disaster in the Collins home. Thursday, our furnace packed up. 
Ah, I know, you feel the pain, thank you. It packed her. Uh, furnace people came round, grateful. They diagnosed the problem and said, uh, but unfortunately the part is in Vancouver and it won't arrive until Monday. At that moment you feel the pain even more. I don't, they can't get it up here until Monday. It's, it's travelling by beaver. And... <laughs> You can make it here by beaver if you go up the Fraser and around the uh, shoe slop. So, we've had to have oil heaters, which we begged, borrowed and stealed. And I've had to get in the garden and chop the wood, open our fire up and keep a blazing, roaring fire of medieval power going in the half, day and night, night and day, to keep my family warm, to keep my wife happy, and to keep my pipes from not freezing up, most important. What we notice is that we're quite enjoying this. Yes, you wonder, you are a strange person. Because what we notice is that the kids have emerged from their bedrooms. <laughs> and they are communing on the sofas, around the roaring fire. They are exalting one another. They are talking to one of each other beyond Snapchat. <laughs> and they are sat there... Blankets wrapped around, having conversation, having communion. And I'm looking at this relationship dynamic and thinking, this is, well, Michelle, I can't really quite like this. Because often in modern family life, with teenagers to 10-year-olds, they go every direction. But here, around the warmth of a raging fire, there is community. There is love, there is relationship, there is conversation, and it feels good. Why does it feel good? Because I am made in the image of a triune God. I am made in the image of the Trinitarian God. I am made in a way, and you and I, that we are made for relationship. We are made not for self-centeredness. We are, uh, we are made... We're made to enjoy that part. Because God has enjoyed it. That's how God has existed for eternity <coughs> without going crazy, I guess. If one could even say that. That God has existed for all time. So God didn't create you and I because he was lonely. He created you and I out of the abundance of his majesty. Out of his poetry of who he is. Out of his love. It's not God didn't create us to get something. He created us to give something. And the getting 
See, often we say, well, he created us so he could get joy. He created us so he could get love. He created us so he could get relationship. No. He created us so that he could give you joy. He created us so he could give you love. He created us so that he could give you relationship because he loves relationship. He wants you to love relationship as well. And this is the words as we look at Mark where Jesus begins his ministry and what are the words that come from heaven? This is my son, my beloved son, whom I love and whom I am pleased with. So when somebody tells you, explain the Trinity to me, and you say, well, it's like water and ice and steam, back off a moment. It's far more than that, isn't it? One God, one eternal God, with three persons, expressed in three persons, is the beauty of what the early church fought against, against Gnosticism, against the Gnostics, against, against the Greek thinking of the many gods, the morphing, the, or even by uh, 600 AD and 700 AD with the rise of um, the Islamic doctrine in the world, the one God doctrine that arised, that eliminated the Trinity in many regions of North Africa from thinking and faith. When you eliminate the Trinity from your thinking and relationship and faith, you eliminate relationship, love, exalting, preferring the message that God is love. I think I'll finish there.